two break-ins at the Democratic National Committee 44 years apart, Watergate and the backstory on the breach of DNC computers. This and more coming up on the ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Eric Chabro. 44 years ago, on June 17, 1972, Washington police nabbed five operatives working for President Nixon's re-election campaign. They broke into the headquarters of the Democratic Party situated in the Watergate complex to photograph campaign documents and install listening devices in telephones. Think about it. If today's technology existed in 1972, the physical breach of the Democratic headquarters would not have occurred. Campaign records would have been stored digitally, and spear phishing or some other online attack would have helped the Nixon operatives to place malware on Democratic Party computers and gain access to those confidential files. And a bit of digital manipulation could have turned the microphones and cameras found on computing devices in the Democratic Party headquarters into multimedia bugs. In all likelihood, the Nixon backers never would have been caught. Watergate would not have been in the American political lexicon. Imagine the trajectory world events would have taken over the years had Richard Nixon completed his second term in office and not been forced to resign as president because of the Watergate scandal. American history, world history for that matter, would have followed a different course. Coincidentally, this year's anniversary of the Watergate break-in coincides with another breach of Democratic Party computers. This time, not by the Republican opposition, but by Russians. This past week, we learned that Russian hackers affiliated with the Kremlin, with the cuddling monikers Fancy Bear and Cozy Bear, likely hacked into the computers of the Democratic National Committee. They accessed emails, chat conversations, and a dossier on presumptive Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump. To dig deeper into the DNC breach, I'm joined by my colleague and ISMG Managing Editor for Security and Technology, Jeremy Kirk. Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Eric. Jeremy, there's several interesting backstories to the DNC breach. One you reported on is the candor about the breach shown by its victims. Yes, we hear a lot about hacks and breaches these days, uh, but many of those come to light after the data has been publicly released by hackers. Generally, companies don't want to admit they've been hacked for a variety of reasons. Why so? Well, it could affect their share price and their reputation, and it's frankly simply embarrassing. But the DNC incident is different for a couple of reasons. The organization gave the go-ahead to CrowdStrike, which is the computer forensics company that it retained to investigate the breach, to publicly talk about the hack and what data was stolen. And it gave this go-ahead to CrowdStrike just days after the firm had actually cleansed its network of the hackers. And typically, computer security companies are rarely allowed to discuss their customers, so this sort of authorization was unheralded. CrowdStrike's co-founder, Dmitry Alperovich, explains the motivation behind the DNC's decision. The reality is that at CrowdStrike, we work these types of cases weekly and almost never can we tell the public about it because we're in strict confidentiality agreements with customers. In this particular case, it was actually the DNC that came to us and said they actually want to publicize it. They want to tell the American public what the Russian intelligence agencies are doing. And they agreed to let us publish indicators related to the compromise, which is also very rare, and help others protect their networks against the types of adversaries and use that information to help find them on their network. The DNC's decision could be partly political as well, Alperovich points out. Now, Eric, you also wrote a very interesting story discussing why Russian hackers are some of the best in the world. Why are they so good? Simply, Russia's dismal economy. Martin Lebicki researches Russian and Chinese exploits in cyberspace for the think tank RAND Corporation. And he says many of these smart mathematicians are being driven into hacking just to support their families. 
Russians are the best mathematicians in the world. And they don't really have an industry that employs them very well, frankly, because, you know, their economy is sort of underdeveloped, Bill. The Russians have always had a penchant for espionage because they've run a police state since the Tsarist era. So, there, you know, there's a lot of reasons for a lot of this stuff to come together. Jeremy, these Russian hackers are more brazen today than they were just a few years back. The biggie sees this tied to Russia's seizing of Crimea from Ukraine in 2014. Since then, there's been a don't-give-a-damn attitude, not only by the Kremlin, but by the privateer hackers, such as the alleged DNC hackers, Fancy Bear and Cozy Bear, who are believed to work closely with Vladimir Putin's intelligence services. These guys have always been good, okay? But before 2014, you never saw them because they were like our NSA. They're very careful, very methodical, really didn't want to get caught. After 2014, you've been seeing them a lot. Lubicki says the Russian hackers today are going after targets they previously would have either ignored or at least approached more cautiously for fear of being caught. Today, they're taking more chances. I think there's been a tendency from their intervention in Crimea forward to put on a nastier face vis-a-vis the West. I think it's a form of brandishing on their part. See what kind of capabilities we have. See what a bad enemy we can be to you if you don't watch out. Well, Jeremy, this story is far from over. I see you just posted a story in which a hacker called Guccifer 2.0 is taking credit for the DNC breach. Still, CrowdStrike is sticking to his guns. It suggests Guccifer could be part of a Russian intelligence disinformation campaign. Stay tuned. Thanks, Jeremy. Yeah, sure thing, Eric. Okay, take care. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Last week, if you recall, we quoted a Rapid7 study that showed Belgium taking first place among the least secure nations on the Internet. ISMG data breach editor Matt Schwartz caught up with Rapid7 security researcher Todd Beardsley at the recent InfoSecurity Europe conference in London. And Matt joins me to talk more about the research. Hi, Matt. Hi, Eric. As you wrote, some of the results from the Rapid7 study weren't pretty. That's correct. They went and scanned the Internet just to see what the open ports were. They looked at 30 top ports, and unfortunately, there was some badness. Things like Telnet being used in an insecure manner, and same again for FTP. These are old protocols. Anything that is sent over them in an insecure manner can be hijacked or eavesdropped on by other people. And it's something that in this day and age, with the Internet being as old as it is, you'd hope to not see anymore. Unfortunately, we also have tons of Telnet. We have millions of Telnet servers out there, about 17 million, I think, Telnet servers, which is uh, way too many for a public internet. Telnet is all clear text. Uh, Anytime you type in your username or password, you're sharing that information with the 12 or so networks that you get routed across pretty much every time. And it's not just like super spy agencies that are watching. It can be, you know, the ISP at an ISP level. It can be like the local wireless. It can be, you know, other devices on your shared media network, things like that. Since the Internet first launched, the protocols used in the Internet have continued to evolve. Instead of just HTTP, now you have HTTPS to secure your Internet communications channels. Same again with FTP. While they observed 20 million, for example, open FTP ports, there's an alternative standard, FTPS, which is a secure version, but there were only 4 million open protocols. Now, using FTPS and other encrypted protocols does help protect your data. We really wanted to you know, take a look at what was clear text versus encrypted out there and really kind of start evangelizing harder, well, now with data, why encryption is important. 
encryption doesn't just get you like passing secret messages that no one can hear. It actually gets you authentication. Without encryption, I can't really tell if I'm logging into the thing I think I'm logging into. They can't really authenticate me because I'm giving up a username and password and declare it means anyone else can kind of come along and reuse that for me. So Matt, what benefit does Beasley see in Rapid7 cataloging in the top 30 protocols? The purpose of cataloging all the open ports in the internet isn't to assign blame, but as Beardsley says, we can make sure we're engineering the internet that we want to have rather than the one that we just grew over time. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Eric. In our last episode, Bank Info Security Executive Editor Tracy Kitten discussed her conversation with the Retail Industry Leaders Association's Austin Jensen. He objected to a bill before the House that would require retailers to meet the same security standards as banks. Since then, Tracy spoke with the American Bankers Association Vice President Doug Johnson. Tracy joins me again. Hi, Tracy. Hi, Eric. First, remind us why RELA, the Retailer Association, objects to the bill known as the Data Security Act of 2015. Well, one of the major objections that retailers have is that the Data Security Act would require retailers to conduct background checks on certain employees, just as banking institutions do. The point that Jensen brings out is that this is really impractical. So if you are a mortgage broker, for instance, at a bank, it makes sense for you to have a background check. If you're a 17-year-old clerk at a checkout counter at the local grocery store, it might not make so much sense to have a background check. The ABA's Doug Johnson doesn't buy that argument, does he? No. Johnson says that all businesses, not just banking institutions, should adhere to the same level of data security as the financial services industry does. The financial services industry has a number of mandates that it has to meet that are called for in uh, the Graham Leach-Bliley Act. One of the things that, that we continually hear from the retail side is that banks have to have a higher level of security than the retail environment does. Even the smallest credit union has to abide by Graham Leach Bliley. The smallest credit union, which is maybe akin to the size of the smallest coffee shop, has the same requirements, but those requirements scale to the size of the institution and the risk that that institution uh, presents to the overall environment and the kind of sensitive data that that entity has. Using the standards within Graham Leach Bliley as a basis is, is entirely appropriate. Johnson says is that because retailers have a lot of the same sensitive information, you know, they're processing payment card information that banking institutions have, they too should be held accountable to the same standards. Thanks, Tracy. You're welcome. That's the ISMG Security Report. Our theme is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Eric Chabro. Catch you next time.